Donna? Billy Joel wrote that song when he was dating her about her, right? Am I right? I've got a little ring. Is there a little ring on the sound there? So, yeah, but there was a basketball game going on, Sadie, so. Okay, but so now we know Krista Brinkley likes caramel corn, kettle corn, kettle corn. So, all right, let's pray, and then we'll uh, look into God's word today. God, we, uh, we want to hear you today, and in saying that, it's again one of those things that if, if we were to step outside and look in to this gathering, it's odd that we are saying that we want to hear from something invisible. We want to see something we can't see, um, and it does sound odd, and it kicks up the weird meter, but, the all, but we also gather here with the baseline assumption that you are real. And your Holy Spirit does speak to us, that you've given us the capacity as human beings to hear what you say to us and see what you show us. So would you increase that capacity in us? Would you refine our hearing and our seeing? Because we want to respond to whatever you ask us, and we want to respond to whatever you show us, because we want to be the people you made us to be. And that's fully alive full of joy, full of peace, full of forgiveness, full of mercy, full of courage, full of love, full of everything, God, that your character um, invol- is in, uh, includes, everything. We want to be what you've designed us to be. And so would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, every once in a while we do one of these online, or, you know, uh, quizzes here preparing for the big day anybody i'm just curious anybody getting married in the next six months just raise your i'm not going to interview you i'm not going to ask you anybody getting married soon anybody okay anybody want to get married soon? just kidding okay <laughs> anyway uh I, this is a survey about wedding preparation so the idea of preparing for the big day well small disclaimer this is the british survey so i'm but i'm guessing some of the issues might be the same all right first question is this How many working days does the average bride spend planning her wedding? A, 8, B, 14, C, 36, D, 60. At least in Great Britain, the correct answer is C, 36. The equivalent of 36 working days on average to plan the wedding. Number two, how many working days does the average groom spend planning the wedding? (laughs) Notice the numbers are a little bit smaller, 3, 4, 5, or 6. Correct answer, anybody? Actually, it's 6. We'll give the benefit that number 6 days. Um, and that's probably counting a working day as like an hour, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. We'll, we'll give number three. How many working days does the average mother of the bride spend planning the wedding? All right. A six, B twelve, C eighteen, D every single day. Uh, correct answer on that one is actually C eighteen. Some of you are probably having bad memories right now of your wedding right now. All right. Preparing for the big day number four, what percentage of brides wish their mothers would have played a less prominent role in planning the wedding? 10, 21, 47, or 83? Correct answer is actually B. About one-fifth of brides wish their mothers would have less involvement in the wedding. Preparing for the big day number five, what percentage of brides have already made most big decisions about wedding before even meeting their husband? All right. A, 12, B, 53. I mean, decisions like what dress to wear, whether they want to get married in a church or not, 
what music they want to go down the aisle to, etc., etc. Correct answer on this one actually is C. 74% have made most of their decisions before, before they even met the groom. So, of course, that's why guys only spend six days helping plan the wedding, all right? Six, preparing for the big day. What percentage of brides admit doing wedding pre preparations while at work? A, 12, B, 53, C, 92, D, I still have to work? Correct answer on this was actually C. Almost all of them have admitted using work hours to plan the wedding. Uh, two more questions. Seven, preparing for the big day. What's the average? And this is actually from an American statistic. What's the average amount spent on a traditional American wedding? Ouch, ouch, ouch. The answer is C, $22,000. All right. Switching gears, preparing for the big day. Just to get you to think. What details, think of all the details of a wedding, but what details would you need to take care of and at what cost if you knew you would soon meet Jesus face to face? I don't mean dying. I don't mean dying. I mean if you knew you were going to have an encounter with Jesus. We, we, and I'm not knocking wedding preparations. I'm not saying don't plan for your wedding, don't plan ahead, don't take care of details. But we understand what it is to prepare for a big day, and we do that. But if you knew you were going to have some unique experience with Jesus, or for that matter, if you had been living in those days and you knew you were going to see Jesus or interact with him, or even now, if you knew you were going to have an interaction with Jesus, what would you need to take care of? I mean, how, how do you prepare for those? I mean, you think even with weddings, you think about the wedding weekend and the women do the nails and the hair and all that. I, mean, I think I shaved twice the day of my wedding just to make sure that was Okay, other than that, I didn't do a whole lot of preparation. I mean, I think I got my hair cut that week, and I wore whatever cuts we decide I was going to wear. But, but, yeah, my own, my own. I'm sorry, I need to push it closer to my face to put my, push my face closer to the mic. Hello? Am I good? Is it not on? Can I borrow, can I get the handheld mic? Mic, I feel like one of the stereotypes. Some of the TV preachers that always are kind of, you know, walking around like this and kind of. <laughs> so if I start doing that, just forgive me because I'm having a relapse or whatever. But no, but seriously though, when you think about what is your, what are the things that you would need to take care? Of? I mean, we, of course, for a wedding, you want everything to look good. You you want to look good. You want to be at your best. But how do you prepare? For something that Jesus wants you to be at your best. How do you, I mean, do you, are we supposed to kind of clean up our act? I mean, you do that for weddings. We clean up our act for weddings. You don't, you're not in a wedding or you don't go to a wedding unless you go with your best. But what does it mean to prepare for something like that? And I mean that in a real, I don't mean in a kind of this weird sense of all of a sudden you're going to get caught up to heaven and see you. I mean in just everyday normal life. What if Jesus were to, interact with you or ask you to do something. How do you prepare for, are there issues in your life you think, well, I, I have to get that taken care of before I get a chance to talk to him. I got, I got some habits I got to stop doing. I have some things I need to start doing. I really need to change my attitude about how I treat people because I want to make sure I'm kind and loving and good and I probably need to check how wh what I do with my money because I don't want that to, I, I, in other words, we, we'd probably think I want to do everything 
I think I should be doing, and I want to be everything I think I should be for Jesus to be pleased with me. I mean, we, and, and, and again, we don't always think about that way, but the text we're going to look at this morning is talking about preparing. How do you prepare for that? What, 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 do, we, what do we do? And even like the song we sang about Jesus, you won't relent until you have it all. Well, what's, what's the all that he needs? What, what needs to change in you? Does he need, really have to have it all? I mean, does he have to have everything? So we've been doing a series, uh, just started last week, calling Seeing Jesus. And my hope really is not simply that you get more information about Jesus so you can win a trivial pursuit when the question is about Jesus or Jeopardy or whatever. My hope is that you and me as well see things differently about Jesus under the eyes of our hearts. Because the Gospel of Mark Gospels, so the Gospel of Mark is about the life of Jesus. So if you don't know much about the Bible, the Gospel of Mark is one of the four different, you can almost call them biographies of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, which is his account of the life of Jesus. From what we know, Mark was not necessarily an eyewitness, but Mark was good friends with a man named Peter, who was an eyewitness to the life of Mark traveled with Peter later on as a missionary, communicating the stories and the mission and ministry of Jesus to people. So Mark would have heard these things from Peter over and over and over again. It's thought that Mark wrote this probably about 65 A.D., sometimes, you know, 30-something years after Jesus had died. Peter either was about to die or had already died. He was actually killed. He was martyred. He was because of persecution. People didn't like some of the things people were talking about with Jesus. So Mark, also called John Mark, Mark probably was encouraged by people, you got to write down all the things Peter said about Jesus. We want to remember, we, we want to pass this on to people. And specifically he wrote this, and this is where it kind of gets, he wrote this to Christians most likely who were all living in Rome. So they were Gentiles, so they were not Jewish Christians, but they were still followers of Jesus. And life was getting tough for them. Peter, around that time, we think, was martyred, was killed. You might hear the story about Nero fiddling why Rome burned. I mean, Rome had had some tragedies. The Christians were starting to get blamed for things. They were becoming more isolated. They were they were kind of being accused of being socially, you know, different because they wouldn't go along with the culture. They wouldn't do what everybody else was doing, and that started to irritate the rest of the culture. So they're starting to question. This Christianity thing, I'm, did I, is this what I signed up for? Because it's not easy. I thought if I became a Christian and followed this Jesus character, I thought things would get kind of easy and nice and flowery. But it's not. And so that's what these people are wrestling with. It's, it's hard sometimes. And there's suffering involved and there's pain. And yeah, there's joy. And Jesus promised joy. But what's with this other stuff? And I'm guessing, if you're like me, you relate to that. So we're no different than these Gentile Christians in Rome from 2,000 years ago. We're trying to figure out, do we have a hold of the right end of the stick of Christianity, or have we got it all wrong? Because I thought it was supposed to be easy and wow. But it's not always easy and wow. It's 
sometimes involves pain and suffering. I feel like I'm left out from my friends, from my culture. I feel like I'm not fitting in, and I don't know what to do. And what do you do? So what Mark, when Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, he wrote it to specific people, you know, 2,000 years ago. But he could have easily written it to, to Christians who live in Bloomington, Indiana in 2016. So one of the things, uh, and let me just, let me give you an overview, because I, I wrote this down just this week, because I really, I want to kind of prick your brain a little bit, prick your thinking about Jesus, because I think the culture, some of our culture, even our church culture, has given us a perception of who Jesus is that doesn't always give us the full picture, and I mean the full three-dimensional picture of who Jesus is. Let me just write, I'll read some things I wrote down. This is just because I want you to see beginnings, this, and this is what we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is explosive, fierce, and focused. Jesus is confrontational, controversial, and supernatural. A lot of feelings in the book of Mark. Jesus is never hurried, never manipulative, and never selfish. He's truthful, blunt, and disruptive. He has the courage to say what everyone knows but won't say. I mean, wouldn't you love to have a friend like that? Sometimes you hate it, but he has the courage to say what everybody else knows about you but won't say to you. Jesus is playful, witty, and, dyna and dynamic. He's sensitive, compassionate, and incredibly kind. I love this word. Jesus is brilliant. He is brilliant. Jesus is wildly free, absolutely holy. He's full of truth and full of mercy. He's misunderstood, rejected, and betrayed. He's mocked, he's tortured, and he's crucified. He's supernaturally raised from the dead. He is a dangerously good man. Dangerous because what dangerous people do is they rattle the status quo. They mess with the way things are. Good because he replaces status quo with what is good and right and holy. So dangerously good men, that's why they killed him. They didn't kill Jesus because he was too nice. They didn't kill, kill, kill Jesus because he was too kind to people. They killed him because he was dangerous to the status quo. So to some degree, when status quo meaning the way things are, so to some degree, when Jesus comes and messes with my life or your life, and he messes with my status quo, you don't always like it. You don't always like it because it's dangerous because it me messes things up a bit. But he only does that to bring in good. So that's what we see in the Gospel of Mark. This dangerous a good man. He's controversial. He's got confrontational. So this is not... You may not think this way, but I think a lot of people do. Jesus was not someone who simply walked around the Galilee and time to side reading poetry and drinking tea or whatever they drank. He was a confrontational, controversial, confronted not only the religious establishment, he con confronted demonic forces. I mean, the, the, the soundtrack to the Gospel of Mark or any Gospel could be like Braveheart or some kind of militaristic but yet kind of real raw human kind of thing. Because this is who he was. But he's also compassionate and tender and kind. So we're going to start this morning, and we're going to look at, last week we just looked at the very opening verse. We're going to kind of jump into the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And we're introduced to a guy, and we'll go to the next slide. We're introduced to uh, a man named John the Baptist. He's referred to as John the Baptist. He was actually a cousin of Jesus. He, uh, his mother Elizabeth, conceived when she was way too old to conceive. So it's one of the early... Usually in the Christmas stories, before Mary gets pregnant, Elizabeth gets pregnant. That's how, that, that's how it actually happens in the Bible. Elizabeth was John's mother. 
And when she got pregnant, even though she and her husband were too old to get pregnant, the Bible tells us that they knew something was special about this baby she had, who she named, who they named John. He became known as John the Baptist, and we'll see John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, because he wasn't the second. So this is how the book starts off. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So this whole book, and I'm thinking of your Christians living in Rome, and you want to understand who Jesus was because all you've heard is stories passed on orally, so you want to understand it more clearly. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. I'm going to stop on this slide for a second. Isaiah was a prophet. He wrote the uh, penned the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament Jewish Bible book, written probably 600 years before Mark wrote this. But Isaiah was writing about someone that would come that would be a forerunner, someone who would prepare people for Jesus to come. And it was said of him, he will prepare the way for Jesus to come. He shouts in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. So again, think back to the wedding preparation. And here the message of John is prepare for Jesus to show up. Because we don't know when, they didn't know when Jesus was going to show up. They, it had been years, and they most, pe- most Jewish people in those days had probably lost hope that the Messiah would ever show up. So they weren't like, oh, we know he's going to come. I mean, they didn't, we have the advantage of reading back into history. They didn't know what was coming. But John starts telling people, prepare the way of the Lord. And the, and the, and the other parts of Scripture talk about, talk about, you know, make straight paths for him. Clear out, you know, clear out the mountains. Clear. In other words, if Jesus is going to come, you've got to remove the obstacles. That's, that's the message of John. Remove the obstacles in your own life that are keeping you from a closer connection with Jesus. Because this is one thing that's interesting, too. Christianity, as far as I understand it, is the only religion where we don't have to go to God and earn our way up the steps. He comes to us in the person of Jesus. And so what John the Baptist is saying was get rid of all the obstacles that will keep Jesus from coming to you. Because he's coming, John's saying. He's coming. John didn't even know when he was coming. John just knew he was telling people, get your hearts ready, because when he shows up, you want to be ready to be fully, I think the word that Kayla used since she was praying, tenderized in your heart. You're going to receive whatever he asks you to do or tells you to do or shows you to do or wants to say to you. So John is shouting. He's preaching. He's this guy out in, he's out in the wilderness. A lot of the Jewish countryside is kind of desert wilderness. And he's out there drawing crowds. And these are people who, again, had kind of had kind of give, maybe given up hope that God was going to do anything. They were in a country occupied by the Romans, kind of like the Nazis occupied Europe. They weren't even in control of their own destiny anymore. They had kind of lost hope. And then this guy starts telling, preaching in the, I mean, I know there's guys that preach on campus. If you've been on campus, you know this. Don't think that. So, I mean, think maybe weird, but don't think their message. But John was kind of odd. So go on here. Here's what it tells us about John. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached to people that should be baptized to show they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. 
at that point, baptism wasn't really a part of how they understood it. But he was, there were other places where you would, ba- you would be baptized in water in the Jewish, you know, to kind of show that you were cleaning off your sin. But the way John talked about it was kind of a new thing in there. Interesting. And then he goes on to tell us this about John. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. When they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. A little odd, yeah? I mean, can you imagine, hey, uh, honey, let's, let's go out. I know we got the afternoon off here or whatever. Let's go out, go out in the countryside. There's this guy named John that's preaching out there. Oh, really, what's he like? Well, he kind of wears these real weird clothes. And I think he just eats like nuts and berries and locusts and honey out there. And he yells a lot. And then people get in the water and he dunks them underwater because he tells them that's what God wants. Excuse me? We're going to do that this afternoon? I mean, he, th- he was, but there was something about him that was compelling. He was odd, but he was compelling. And people were drawn. All of Judea. I mean, Judea is like a whole area around Jerusalem. It's, you know, everybody knew about this guy. And everybody wanted to go out because there was something compelling about what he was saying. And he was challenging people, confess your sins. Because, again, if we're preparing the way for the Lord, the beginning point, and I, the beginning point is you've got to deal with stuff that you, don't, that you have, up to this point, maybe have not wanted to deal with. I don't know if it's habits you have, habits you don't have that you should have. I don't know. But you know those things. I think all of us could, could think of things, well, yeah, I probably could be kinder in those situations. Or, yeah, I probably need to kind of address some of those issues with some of my sexual habits. And, or, yeah, I, I probably need to think about some things with my money. And, but for these people, John said, do you want Jesus to kind of engage you in your life today? And it's not kind of this, I'm going to stick your nose in it. It's like, no, Jesus wants, the the Bible actually says he will come to any of us who choose to obey him. He will, actually, another gospel says he will show himself to us. But he won't if, if, if we continue or if I continue to harbor things that I think, well, that kind of gives me life, so I'm going to hold on to that. So John's preaching this to people. You, you have to confess your sins. And this baptism represents something. It represents your willingness to get rid of anything that Jesus asks you to get rid of. And then he goes on to say this. He says, John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. Which is a low, low, low thing to have to do if you were a slave is to basically hang somebody's shoes off or clean their feet or whatever, tie their shoes, untie their sandals. I baptize you with water, John said, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he's got this message about there's something that really is accessible to you now. It's going to be soon. John didn't know when. He didn't, it wasn't like, this wasn't scripted. But he knew that something, God was going to be acting in a mighty way. And he said, I'm baptized with water, but a supernatural reality is now going to be accessible to you. Then it goes on. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. All right, Jesus would have been John's cousin. They didn't live in the same town before, you know, obviously before texting and Internet and email and trains and cars and planes and trains. 
so the sense is they may not have known each other that well. Jesus would have been 30-ish about this time, grew up in a carpenter's home, blue-collar home. John baptized him in the Jordan, or he baptized Jesus in the Jordan. Jesus didn't need to confess sin. He didn't need to repent of sin. So kind of hold on to that question. Why was he baptized? As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. So it's, I guess you could say it's the unveiling of Jesus. It wasn't a, it, not like a, it wasn't like, oh, now he becomes the son of God. He'd always been the son of God. He'd always been 100% human, 100% God. That adds up if it doesn't. But he always was the son of God. But this was the point in which he would have been sent unveiled to the public, so to speak. John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes out of the water. They hear this voice saying, this is my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with him. He brings me great joy. So again, back up a second. Let's look at here these Christians in Rome who are reading this for the first time, and you're trying to figure out, do I get this Christianity right in my heart? And, and you're starting to see, okay, there's a supernatural element to this. Now, something's going to happen here with, with John. There's a supernatural power happening. There's a voice from heaven. There's an affirmation that Jesus really is the Messiah, the one who will set us all free. Let me go to the next part. So this is what's interesting. So Jesus is baptized. John has this message, prepare the way, be ready, be ready, be ready, get ready, get rid of the obstacles. Jesus is baptized, and then right after his baptism, the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go out to the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, the angels that took care of him. Now, let me just say a little about the nature of what the, the Jewish or even the Gentile hearers would have thought when they heard the wilderness. Right? John is in the wilderness, so he has to go out to the wilderness to be baptized. Jesus is baptized, and the Spirit sends him to the wilderness. So in, the, in, in that culture, the wilderness is kind of like a theme. You can call that a literary theme, but they knew it. The culture, the, the, the wilderness was a place that reminded them all of the children, the Israelites leaving Egypt and traveling in the desert for 40 years. It was a place to some degree of isolation. It's a place of loneliness. It's a place where life didn't grow. It's a place of desolation. They would even have thought about the times where the Jewish people were taken in exile to Babylon modern-day Iran, Iraq, where they had to go through the desert, they had to go through desolation. So the wilderness has this sense of not a great place to be. It was thought the wilderness was where there was great activity from the demonic. Things don't grow there, hunger and thirst. So John's in the wilderness. People are called to the wilderness. Jesus is baptized, and he's sent to this place of isolation, desolation, lifelessness, no water, demonic activity. And then this is where I stop to think, and I've, this is what I've been wrestling with this week, I stop to think, okay, wait a minute. Jesus is doing this, this he's baptized, he's doing kind of the right thing. I thought when you get baptized, doesn't like rose-colored glasses appear and life becomes great? But boom, he's sent out into the place of isolation, desolation, 
temptation and ac accusation from Satan. And it kind of turns around our perception because we tend to think, well, if I'm a Christian, I thought comfort then follows and all this great stuff and ease and comfort and provision. But what's interesting, too, is the wilderness, as they would have understood it, was also a place, if you think about the Israelites going through the desert where God supernaturally provided them water, supernaturally provided them bread from heaven and manna, supernaturally provided them quail. The desert, the wilderness is also a place of supernatural provision. Supernatural care. Supernatural leadership from the Holy Spirit. Remember the children of Israel, they were led by a fire cloud at night, or a fire cloud at yeah, fire cloud at day and a regular cloud at, or fire cloud at night. And they were, they were guided supernaturally by something, a cloud. A I'm not saying it right, a cloud of fire at night. So it was supernatural leading, supernatural provision in the wilderness. So, okay, so on one hand, the wilderness is isolation, desolation, despair, lifelessness, no water, no food. And it was a place the Jewish people thought was the place of judgment. Because God's people had, usually when they were in the wilderness, it's because there was some kind of, God was displeased and was trying to refine things out of them. But then also the wilderness is a place of supernatural provision, supernatural care, supernatural interaction with the Spirit. Okay, and if, and if I'm going to vote, I, I want this one. I want this kind of wilderness. I want, because it was also thought to be a place where you're closer to God. And you had this supernatural encounter and God does things in you and for you and takes care of you in ways that you can't explain. But the correct answer is when we are called to the wilderness, it's both. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't really want that. I don't want isolation and death. I don't want, I don't want God's judgment. I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to clean anything out in my life. Because again, the wilderness, in their understanding, they knew the wilderness was a place where you get refined. I want this. I want this. I want provision, supernatural. But I don't want this. And the story of the whole Bible, the story of the Christian life is, if you want this, you have to go through this. If you want supernatural encounter, supernatural experience of God, if you want to be somebody in 2016 who says things like you connect with the supernatural aspect of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can't say, but I don't want that. You have you have to have both. Because God will refine you. He will He will identify things in you that need to go. He will identify things that maybe you've kind of found great comfort in. And you may even find life in, but he says, No, it has to go. So even even Jesus is not exempt from the wilderness. He's sent to the wilderness to face temptation and spiritual attack right away. But then we'll see when we look at next week, then when he comes onto the scene, he's got like supernatural power, supernatural compassion, forgiveness. But you can't have that if you don't go through this. And here's, here's, here's I think, the challenge. You hear these people are coming out to be baptized by John into repentance, and they probably didn't fully understand, and neither do we, if we're honest, because we all want that. We want the supernatural parts of Christianity and forgiveness and mercy. We want to be supernaturally forgiving people and loving people and courageous people. And we just want God to zap us with that. But it, 
seems as if it's pretty clear what the story of the Bible is, even the story of Jesus is, but this hasn't come close. So when when you or I are baptized, and I'm going to say something in particular about Jesus being baptized, or even baptized with the Holy Spirit, sometimes it may get harder before it gets more powerful. And if you're like me, you're like, oh, come on, man, did it have to be that way? I didn't want that to happen. Look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is full of supernatural power. These are from human beings like you, ordinary people, healed people. They saw miracles happen. They saw tons of people come to know Jesus. Book of Acts. Some of these same people are arrested. Some of them literally lost their heads. They were whipped. So it's like you can't have that without this. You can't. So it seems as if beginning of the gospel of mark what mark saying to the people in rome who were struggling with whether they had the right understanding of christianity and he's saying to us is no there is all of this there's supernatural power and forgiveness and you will be changed like you never understood you could be changed and you'll have courage and love and joy that will be incomparable to any human experience but you can't skip this so he's in a way, he's encouraged them, saying, what you're going through is a refining process. But know that God is with you, and he is making you these kinds of people. Um, I'm going to finish with, uh, I was going to finish with a song, but no, I'm not singing, so don't get worried about that. But there's a song I've listened to some lately, and it kind of struck me one time. And it relates to this, but there's a song, it's a passion song called White Flag. And remember the song, we, wa- we raise our white flags, we surrender all to you. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm going to surrender to you, Jesus, surrendering all to you. Which, like I said, none of us really, we consider that 100% honest because we don't know. And we still want to hold on to things. But it's like, it's a real kind of upbeat, you know, kind of upbeat, it's kind of fun. We raise our white flags, we surrender all to you, all to you. And you can hear on the, at least the recording I have, you can hear like tons of people singing it. They're probably waving their arms back and forth. There's energy, there's life. And when I listen to it, I'm thinking, oh, this is, oh, this is what I want. I want that kind of, yes, yes. And, and, and it's, it's true, it's true. We, we need to surrender in that sense. And that's what baptism is. It's a surrendering. I die, all right? And then there's part of the song that says, uh, we lift the cross, lift it high, lift it high. And I'm doing this because I'm imagining people in that concert are doing this, you know. And again, a lot of emotional energy. Like, yes, we lift the cross, and it's kind of like power, you know. And this actually hit me when I was mowing the lawn once this summer, believe it or not. Because I was listening to this song when I was on my riding mower because I was in a phase where I was trying to figure something out in my life. And this, that we lift the cross, lift it high, lift it high. And it's kind of like this, I want this emotional high of following Jesus. And I thought, if we're lifting high the cross, and we're lifting high the value that Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. If you want to live, you have to die. That's what we're lifting up. And again, I'm not, I'm not at all going to impugn any of the motives of people who are singing on that CD, or when I sing, or when you sing. But I don't know that we really understand that's what we're doing. We lift the cross, lift it high. 
Because really what we're saying is, if I'm going to find my life, I've got to die first. If I want supernatural power and provision and forgiveness, I've got to go through the wilderness. And that there, there is a passion there that we should have. But we also need to temper that passion, not, not change the passion, not turn it down, but temper it with the reality of, okay, he needs to refine me. Because lifting the cross high, which is wa- it's, it's waving the white flag. That's what baptism is. It's waving the white flag. I'm surrendering my all to him. But it's also saying, when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to give up your life so people can find you. And to find him, you've got to lose your life. And that's actually put it upside down to what most of us want to have. But we all want to find it. I do. I want this kind of life. I don't want to sign up for that. But the promise of Jesus is he will, he will, he will transform you. He will make you an abnormally loving, joyful, and courageous person if you surrender to him unconditionally and let him use whatever means he needs to use the wilderness, the wilderness experience, which may just be that life may not be going good for you now. It doesn't mean you can't still have joy and peace and love, but life may be hard for you like it was in the Christians in Rome 2,000 years ago. And so I suppose the challenge is this. You know, th- some of you may say I'm a Christian. Some of you may not be. Some of you are not really sure. But there's joy and there's power and there's peace. But make sure you're surrendered to Jesus. If you've been baptized before, Make sure you what you think about you being a Christian now means it's a white flag. It's not a conditional white flag. You don't say, well, I wave my white flag as long as I can still have this, this, and this, God. No, I'm whatever you want from me is what I want. Because I want to be that kind of person more than anything else. That's what you're saying to him. So let's, uh, let's pray. Jesus, um, Scripture says that for the joy set before you, Jesus, you endured the cross. And you scorned the shame of it. But you saw the joy. You saw the life on the other side. You saw joy. You saw peace. You saw forgiveness. You saw courage. And you didn't let the horror of the cross stop you from doing what you needed to do to open up this whole new gateway for us. And if we say we are disciples of you, Jesus, we need to share in you our mindset as well that says we know there's joy. You said abundant joy. We know there's peace. You said it's an irrational otherworldly peace. We know there's courage that no human intimidation would stop. And we know that's what you can do in our lives. And we will follow you, Jesus, into the wilderness, into the cross, in any ways in which you want to refine us or deal with those things in us because we want to be the kind of people that are fully alive relationships. That's what we want to be. So, Jesus, we we love you, and uh, we want to follow you completely. And uh, we love what you do for us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. We finish every week.